Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. I want to thank our listeners for joining us every week for our fantastic author interviews, short stories for our readers on the run, and valuable tips for writers that emerge out of the mouths of our venerable guests. We've got a great lineup scheduled over the next few weeks. On July 1st, our Canada Day interview is with former Canadian Parks Ranger and mystery author George Mercer. On July 8th, we'll be chatting with Jane Barnard, a Canadian crime writer. On July 15th, we'll bring you an interview with Perry Block, author of Nouveau Old, Formerly Cute. On July 22nd, we'll be speaking with Iris Weichler, the author of Role Reversal and other self-help books. On July 29th, we'll be speaking with Jen Knox, author of Glass City and After the Gazebo. As for today, I'm delighted to bring you an interview with Canada's own crime writer, Denise Wilson, known as Dee to her friends. Before we get down to today's story, which will feature another great crime writer of Canada, our own queen of comedy, Melody Campbell, with her flash piece, July is Hell, I've got to bring you up to date on some news. Last week, today's author, Dee Wilson, launched her brand new business website, BEOP.ca. Both ends of the pencil offer services in professional editing and content writing by an established author, editor, and creative thinker. New and established authors, make sure your work is polished at the outset. Visit dwilson at beop.ca and find out how both ends of the pencil can help make your work shine. Last week, we brought you our review of Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic, by David Frum. It was a great book, and I highly recommend it, especially the Audible edition. This week, as promised, I want to tell you about a book that came out in December 2008, but due to the tragic recent death of its author, Anthony Bourdain, is experiencing a revival at the moment. Kitchen Confidential Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly is a rollicking and hysterically honest look at life in some of the hottest kitchens of our time. As our listeners know, my crazy schedule makes it hard to read quickly, so my preference is for audible editions. I can listen to them when I'm walking or standing in line or anything like that. Bourdain's flagship work is available in Audible, masterfully presented in his own familiar voice. Tony is three parts pirate, two parts best a buddy, and five parts culinary artist. Throughout his book, he is all parts raw, slicing through the veneer of the restaurant business to bring us a truly behind-the-swinging-doors look at life on fire. I was, of course, drawn to his work because of Tony's recent death by his own hand. I was particularly moved by Tony's suicide. I don't know why. I didn't know him except, of course, for the public persona we all witnessed on our television sets. Public persona. That's a phrase I find fascinating, not the least because I've seen it far too often in cases like this. Large, lovable personalities, the type of characters who glow in the dark, who attract friends and followers seemingly without effort. People like the former owner of the company I work for in its previous incarnation, Mr. Harvey Southam of Southam, Inc. Harvey was always ready with a wide smile, a joke, a friendly word for any of our 350 employees, each of whom he knew on a first-name basis. He was young for a man at his level, handsome, gregarious, and personable to the max. In short, he was loved by all who knew him. When he took his life in 1991 in Toronto, many in the media refused, out of respect for his family, to report that it had been a suicide. How, I wondered, would honesty have been a mark of disrespect? But I guess, to many people, even today, mental illness, depression, are marks of shame and weakness. The stigma remains. 
But how, I wondered, as someone who still to this day holds Harvey in the deepest of respect, is it a kindness to refuse to be honest? More importantly, how can our silence help anyone else who may be suffering? When Harvey loped in his gangly, tall way through our offices at 1450 Don Mills Road, he brought the sunshine with him. Everyone he passed would stop to chat. Not a single one of us had any idea of how he was suffering below the surface. Which brings me to remembering my own late sister, Debbie, who took her own life so many years ago. Debbie was a 19-year-old willowy blonde with a crystalline soprano singing voice and a sense of mischief that preceded her. Everyone was instantly drawn to her laughter, her less-than-subtle sense of humor. She would joke, laugh. She was a lifelong fan of Carol Burnett. Her timing was stellar. You couldn't be in a room with her for more than a minute without breaking into raw laughter, and we all know how the world loves to laugh. There's an old saying, if you can make the people laugh, they will love you forever. But when that laughter hides a deep, dark mental illness, that laughter has an unforgiving shelf life. That's what I learned through losing my sister. And that's the memory drawn back to the surface of my mind by Tony Bourdain's recent passing. For fans of Parts Unknown, the exceptional CNN travelogue for foodies starring Anthony Bourdain this is a must-read. If you haven't already clapped your eyes or ears onto Kitchen Confidential, please do so today. You won't be sorry. At the moment on my Kindle, I'm thoroughly engaged in the latest novel by Stephen King, The Outsider. I'm finding it impossible to put down, even with my chock-a-block schedule. No doubt die-hard fans of Stephen King are already absorbing it. But for anyone not familiar with his excellent work, I'll bring you the goods on my reaction to this book next week. I also want to tell you about something I'll be digging into more deeply in an upcoming episode. A brand new book by author Caro Souls titled People Like Us. James Dubrow says that People Like Us is a beautifully written, intricate, haunting tale of how a Toronto woman's seemingly perfect life is completely upended and almost destroyed by sexual secrets involving her close friends and a 19-year-old gay street hustler. Nothing is as it appears to be in this profoundly moving coming-of-age novel. Caro Souls is a mature literary writer who in this subtle and haunting mystery is at the top of her game, and that's, as per James Dubrow, gay activist here in Toronto. But I definitely have this book, People Like Us, on my to-be-read list, and I'll bring you my own take on it over the next couple of weeks. And now, for our readers on the run, I bring you a short, short flash piece by my friend and fellow crime writer, Melody Campbell, titled, July is Hell. The Toronto Sun called Melody Campbell Canada's Queen of Comedy. Library Journal compared her to Janet Ivanovich. She has a commerce degree from Queen's University, but it didn't take well. Melody has shared a literary shortlist with Margaret Atwood and was seen lurking on the Amazon Top 50 bestseller list between Tom Clancy and Nora Roberts. She has over 200 publications, including 100 comedy credits, 40 short stories, and 14 novels. Melody has won the Derringer, the Arthur Ellis, and eight more awards for crime fiction. She didn't even steal them. Her latest crime caper, The B-Team, has just been released. Her previous one, The Bootlegger's Goddaughter, is a finalist for the 2018 Ontario Libraries Association's Golden Oak Award. One more thing, she's the former executive director of Crime Writers of Canada. July is Hell by Melody Campbell. I came back to the squad car with two coffees, both black. Bill was fanning himself with yesterday's newspaper. It's friggin' middle of the night, for Christ's sake. How can it still be so hot? I shrugged. July is hell. Always will be. I passed him the cup of java. This job is hell, Bill muttered, leaning back in his seat. His thick body showed the wear and tear of thirty years on the job. He removed the lid carefully and threw it on the dash. 
Then he sighed. I've got bad news for you. I was alert now, looking keen. His gray eyebrows creased into a frown. You know that perp who raped those young girls back in March? I nodded. Of course I knew. We had worked that case around the clock. Bill looked at me, then quickly looked away. They got him off on a technicality. I cursed. We'd tracked him for weeks. We knew he was guilty, even if he had worn a balaclava. It was all in the way he reacted when we arrested him. You just know. That smile. I know, Bill mumbled. Damned lawyers. Time for me to get out of this hellhole. Do something positive with the rest of my life. So, you're really going to retire then? I asked. He nodded. This case made up my mind. I'm finished with it. He looked over at me. You have your own decisions to make. You're young. You sure you want to stay in this game? I made a point of looking serious. It's what I do, Bill. What I've always wanted to do. He shook his head. Then he took another sip. Just be careful you don't get completely disillusioned like I am. It's not healthy. Letting scum like that go free on a technicality. He snorted in disgust. He'll go to hell when he's dead, I said evenly. You really believe that stuff? Bill's voice was soft. Well, you just go on believing it, Chris. Maybe it'll keep you sane. I doubt it, I thought to myself. I doubted it again when I took a knife to the perp's throat the next night. It took me only a few hours to track him down. That's the advantage of being a cop and a woman. You know how to find people. You know how to kill. And you know how to cover your tracks. He was going to hell all right, but I swear it was just as hot here. The end. And that has been July is Hell, a fabulous flash piece by Melody Campbell. Hope you've enjoyed the story. And now I'm going to bring you our interview with D. Denise Wilson. Hello. Good morning, Dee. It's Donna Carrick at Dead to Rights, and welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. For our listeners, this is uh, Denise Wilson, who is the author of A Keeper's Truth and Got, which is a gift of travels. A series, and uh, Denise is joining us here today to talk about her work and other aspects of the writing industry. So, how are you this morning? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, it's a bright, sunny day out there. Yeah, I live down on the water in Port Luzi. We built a house here about a year ago, and um, so my I, I cannot complain. My my view is spectacular. It's oh, that's morning. that's terrific. Are you on the lake shore? We're right on. We're right on the water, yeah. We're on, um, it's called Bayview, but it's right on, the like, literally, I'm looking out my back window as I'm speaking to you, and the waves are breaking <laughs> against the back of my rock. Oh, so that's it's, terrific, it's yeah. beautiful. We're right on Lake Ontario, yeah. That is terrific, yes. It's I love really Lake pretty. Ontario. I used to live in... at times, actually, but it's, it's uh, when the water hits really hard and it gets really rough, but when the storms come in, but most of the time it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and we've got a beautiful sunny day out there today. I hear it's supposed to warm up finally. But I had a few questions for you, Denise, that uh, relate to your work to begin with. Um, I love titles. I'm a real lover of titles. And um, there's something really weird about the premise of A Keeper's Truth and Got. And uh, I sense something really personal in No Apology for Being. One gets the sense that there is more of D in these works than you might uh, care to admit. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your characters, and especially in what way do they grow out of your own world experience? Oh, wow, these are loaded questions, aren't they? <laughs> they really are. Yeah, just to, um, to break them down a little bit at a time. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, first of all, I, I'm definitely a lover of titles as well. I, I know a lot of authors have difficulty creating titles for their works. Um, I don't. Uh, now, whether they are good titles or bad titles is, I suppose, somewhat subjective, but um, I don't know. The, the titles just seem to be very, very clear to me quite early on in the writing process. Um, 
the keeper's truth uh, is probably the most um, personal from a perspective that it was, well, a, it was my first full novel. I had written several novels before that, but they were, I had never fully completed one, and not to the extent of, of Keeper's Truth anyway. And um, it was definitely a book that uh, was personal from a perspective that I had never really dived, I've never really, I, had, I hadn't dived that deep into really writing a, a story that um, could have so many layers as A Keeper's Truth does. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of my works prior to that were maybe a bit more superficial. Um, so it was personal from that perspective. Uh, where it probably is not personal is there's actually a lot of um, layers and a lot of things that take place in A Keeper's Truth that I don't know if I personally believe in. There's a lot of history I researched for the better part of almost a year, year and a half writing that book. I wrote the first draft and then I put it aside and did a lot of research because there was a lot of things that were coming up in the story that, uh, although they were things that were coming to my mind, were things that I really didn't know a lot about. And I had to sort of reach out and and read a lot of other books to figure out what those premises were, what those threats. I, I really love research. Can you, can you give us an example of one of the things that you had to research for A Keeper's Truth? Um, sure. I, I mean, this example is probably going to make me sound a little bit kooky, uh, but um, for example, there was uh, Keeper's Truth had a lot to do with dreams. I was having, I, I'm sure lots of writers had the same experiences, but how A Keeper's Truth started was I woke up one morning and I had had this very, very vivid dream. And it was a scene that takes place about 75% of the way through the book, the way it currently reads. But it was a very, very powerful Scene. And it was one of those things that just you get up. I have I have young kids, and I have, my kids were a lot younger then. They were toddlers, and um, you know I had two of the kids that had slept mm. over that night, so I had a house full of three year olds, and it was chaos. And it was one of those things that it just would not let go. By I I don't know maybe a day later or two days later. I could not shake the dream. It was just so clear. The voices were clear. The characters were there. And I sat down and I, I thought, you know what, I, I need to just write this out. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, I was not planning to write a novel. It wasn't like I sat down and I wasn't planning to write another one anyway. It wasn't wasn't a work in progress by any stretch. And I sat down and I started to write it. Um, and the more I wrote it down, um, I would go to bed at night and the more it would just sort of ferment in my head. And I would have you know, further dreams, the characters became even more vivid, and they'd have other conversations, and, and so, but they would start to have these conversations, or the come up, that I didn't really understand, and I know that's what makes me sound a little crazy, because I, I don't really, I'm not a superstitious person, and mm-hmm. I, I don't really believe in, sort of, magic, and voodoo, and all of that stuff, but, yeah, I'm pretty pragmatic about those things myself, so, yeah, uh, yeah, but on, on the other hand, though, that's also what makes uh, writing that type of stuff so fascinating to me, and I hope that comes off to a reader of my mm-hmm. work as well, is because I'm very scientific. I'm, I'm all about you know, research and facts and, you know, real knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so when I have these um, ideas for story threads that are really quite, have, have elements of... Um, mythical or, or things that are beyond my understanding, mm-hmm. they sort of make me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of know um, what you're talking about. I have an unpublished work called uh, I Ching Ballet, and um, it involves a uh, villain who is very in, very um, fascinated with I Ching, sort of, uh, which is a Chinese future telling sort of system. And so I had to research extensively on how I Ching works and what the belief system is. And uh, do I believe that we can determine the future by a set of sticks? No, not really. But, you know, the character believes it. So, therefore, I have to know a lot about it. So Exactly. And and, and, and yet, as much as I'm not sure I believe, um, 
I am totally fascinated by a lot of the concepts that come up in A Keeper's Truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those don't know, who don't know or if you haven't you know, even read it, um, A Keeper's Truth, a lot of it is about, it's about a current day uh, young woman who um, has experienced right from the onset of the, the very first sentence, uh, severe tragedy. Her husband um, has passed away and they have uh, a four-year-old daughter and she really feels quite inadequate to raise her child by herself. And it's all very sudden uh, and, and very tragic. And especially she has a, a pretty rough childhood. So, you know, having been, been just, you know, married and have a child is, is for the first time in her life she has some order. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it really throws her for a loop. And in doing so, the grief opens a part of her that she, A, doesn't believe in, B, has no understanding of or concept of, and she realizes that she can see into people's souls. So she can, not everyone, um, but she mainly sees old souls. So the, the concept is that is that all of us, uh, for, for the sake of the story anyway, um, all of us have souls. We, we mm-hmm. are all reborn from a previous life. But there's old souls and then there's new souls. And old souls are people who have, their souls have lived various lives dating way back in history. Mm-hmm. And then obviously newer souls are the opposite of that. They're, they're newer souls that maybe don't have as much um, background. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that none of us remember our souls. Our, or our souls do not, and it's on purpose. It's, it's the way we are created so that, you know, you have some experience in the past to go by. It's almost like a computer that's been shut down, but there's certain memories or certain mm-hmm. things that are still there, but they're not clear to you, but they might help guide you in certain decisions you make or certain personality traits that you have. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, uh, you don't really know what those are for for good reason, so that you can, um, every new life, you can start anew. And, mm-hmm. and the idea is that, our souls are here to learn. They're here to learn with each lifetime mm-hmm. uh, the person that you want to be. Which is really basically the study of Buddhism or um, or uh, Zen learning, you know. Absolutely. Uh, uh, what is your character's name in A Keeper's Truth? Uh, the main character is Tess Morgan. Okay. And uh, the gentleman, uh, there's two gentlemen in that story, and um, Thomas and Bryce. Thomas and Bryce and Tess Morgan and Tess is, uh, 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 I guess, could be described as an empath in a way. I guess, yeah. I, I actually, it's funny because I did, I did a fair amount of research, but then there were certain things that uh, I would stumble across that I actually intentionally said, "Whoa, I'm not going to read that." <laughs> <laughs> um, and I find that with a lot of my work, I do that because there's certain things that that I need to know as the author to write it well, but then there's other things that I realize that the character does not know, and so I actually don't want to know. Um, okay. Because I, can, because I can better feel for her perspective. In and her sense of discovery, because the reader wants to be discovering exactly. along with you know, the character, um, yeah. And so there are certain things when I'm researching that I go, as soon as I stumble across it, I go, whoa, wait a minute, stop. I don't yeah. want to know any more about that. Yeah. Now, our um, listeners may not realize, but in 2017, A Keeper's Truth won the Kobo Best Emerging Canadian Author Award. Um, so that's pretty prestigious and, and pretty important. Can you tell our listeners about your experience with Indigo and about what the Kobo Award has meant to you in pushing forward in your work? Um, absolutely. Um, now, Kobo and Indigo are not... They're not... Uh, no, they're not... Yeah. They're Not separate companies, anyway, yeah. Or at one point. Um, so uh, I, I do have a background with Indigo, so I'm not too sure if that's what you're referencing. I, I've worked with Indigo for uh, almost 19 years now. Okay. So, But that's uh, separate from my writing. I work, okay. I'm a contract buyer, so I work with them on that. Um, but, um, yeah, Kobo, it was, um, it was an amazing award. And for those who were at the ceremony, I'm sure would... Um, would have their own stories with that because my speech was absolutely insane. I, I had never, I didn't write a speech because there was no way 
I had ever thought that I would win the award. <laughs> there was so no I way you were winning, Dee. There was no way. You were not going to win. But then, lo and behold, you won. <laughs> it, it was crazy, yeah. I had actually written congratulations um, Facebook posts that I hadn't posted yet um, <laughs> to the winners. So it was quite shocking. Um, but, yeah, that was um, – it was unexpected. It was something that was submitted by my publisher, uh, I was just over the moon. I am still over the moon, excited about it. It really, um, you know, writing is very personal, and you know, I mean, you would know, and any writers know. Mm-hmm. We sort of live in this bubble, yes. To an extent, um, I mean, social media has made things much more open these days, but you still live within a, a bubble. You like do, yes. Your thoughts are your own. I mean, if you're a real writer, your thoughts are your own. And um, when we express them, we express them to ourselves first. Yeah, and so I think because of that, um, and there's a lot of, um, or at least for me anyway, there's a lot of self-doubt in writing. There's a lot of, you know, I have moments where I I think, oh, this is genius and I love it and I've done a great job on whatever, a chapter or a sentence or, you know, whatever. Yes. Uh, And then other times I go, oh, my Lord, what am I doing? (laughs) What was I thinking? (laughs) What is that? You know, like, seriously, that? I can't have anybody read that. Yeah. Um, And so there's a lot of, because you are in this bubble, um, there's not a lot of outside um, participation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you get bring it back to the Kobo Award, what I'm trying to get at is, so when you get recognized for any kind of award or any kind of acknowledgement, um, it breaks that bubble a little bit, even just temporarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it makes you feel like you're part of a bigger picture um, yeah. for a while. And it makes you um, realize that other people have read your work um, mm-hmm. and other people in the industry even, not just readers. Yes. You know, Yes. Yes. I ask a lot because I have a a lot of authors um, among my network of friends who are award-winning authors. And I I tend to ask them this question because, you know, I'm really interested in how it impacts your your future work, whether it adds an impetus or whether it, um, in some cases, it can cause self-doubt even even more because how do you follow that, you know? No pressure here. Yeah, you hear that, you think, oh my gosh, thousands of submissions, and they narrowed it down to my book? Like, (laughs) wow. Um, And so, on one hand, you're you're very flattered, and and it motivates you to think that, okay, well, maybe there are other people who think that I can do this, and and that, you know, I have something to say, and I say it well enough to, Mm -hmm. you know, deserve that kind of recognition. But then, on the other hand, you know, you... You have part of you that always, or at least I do, I have always part of me that goes, oh, God, when are they going to realize I'm a fraud? And, <laughs> do you and know you're not the first no person, I'm doing. you're not the first person to say <laughs> you know, exactly that to me. <laughs> you know, several novels, and I, that's not really true, I do know what I'm doing, but you have moments, you know, yeah. where you feel that way, and you think, oh, my gosh, are they going to ask me for this money back? <laughs> you know, um, are they going to strip me of this award if I, you know, and then there's even part of you that kind of goes, well, oh my gosh, now there's pressure. Yes. You know, now, yes. now there's an expectation. When I, when I wrote A Keeper's Truth, it was purely for myself. I mean, I had no intention, even when I started it, writing a full novel and completing it. It, it never even entered my radar. Um, and I definitely did not have publishing in mind or agents or, mm-hmm. you know, any of that um and so from that perspective it was definitely something personal and so uh it does put a little bit of pressure on you because now what do you do for an encore yeah other people have an expectation 
So I'm actually lucky because I wrote got before I ever uh, I ever even got a Keeper's Truth published. Okay. So um, I wrote got um, just just before a Keeper's Truth came out. Okay. Now I have a question for you that I'm kind of skirting around because it's a very dark question. Um, you grew up in St. Catharines, Ontario, and um, I, I'm going to ask the question and I'll leave it to you to determine how much you want to answer because I think you know where I'm going with this. Um, one of the most horrific news stories ever to come out of Canadian um, news was a true life case that uh, rocked us to the core back in the early 90s with... Um, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, who were at that time living in St. Catharines, um, how aware or when did you become aware of this case and did it color any of your writing? There's two sides of that. First, I'll say that I don't think it outwardly did, um, but I don't think any writer can ever legitimately say that things that happen in their past, in their childhood, or in their history, don't in some way alter the way they write or mm-hmm. the way certain characters think. Um, but I think it's very subconsciously. Um, like, I, I, don't, I don't... I never sat down and it was a conscious thing. Um, the other side of that coin of what I'll say is that um, I, uh, I was in my um, late teens when uh, that happened. And it, I lived right down the street, um, so it was extremely close to home. Um, both of the girls were in my brother's classes in school. And so it was a very, very personal thing. Um, and I'll also mention, um, we built this house here. So I live literally across the street from where Paul Bernardo lived and where he oh dear. did what he did. I had no idea you were that close. I may not have asked uh, like the question if I Literally, if I look had. out my front window, I can see the, where it was. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's right across the street um, on the same road. And so uh, we built this house um, a year uh, We moved in a year ago. And um, when we looked at the land to buy, uh, to build, that was one of the things that was really difficult for me was because I grew up with that story and with wasn't a story it was real life and I I grew up with the effects of that and um and so it was actually really hard to even buy this land because of that uh you know it it, those things affect you forever yes yes they Um, do and and I although I don't remember a lot of details of it you know I was young and Mm -hmm. had your own things Mm -hmm. on the go I remember um everyone being very afraid for a long time. Yes, like for, a long time. For, for a long time. For a long time. In fact, now that my children go to the school down the street, um, and they walk, there's not a day that goes by that it doesn't at least enter my mind for a split second yeah. that my kids are walking by that property. Yeah. You know, or or does it... Um, and, and I see it, because I moved away from here when I was um, uh, younger, um, I, and I've just moved back. Uh, I had a lot of years in between, so that I was not local. Mm-hmm. And so now I see things, or I hear things, or I see circumstances that come up in other parents of children uh, my kids' age, um, and certain things where I know, like I can peg where that's coming from. Certain yeah. fears or certain comments that are made, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. about how you know. Well, you know, she, she's going to walk home alone. Mm-hmm. She's two minutes down the street from the school. <laughs> yes, yes. And our and parents never would have thought of it. Now, it I, sus- never, I suspect ever, that I'm... never, even come up. No, Why would no. a 12 and 15-year-old not walk home from school? No, exactly. You know, down the street. Um, and so parents now, they'll say things, and although it doesn't, it isn't uh, outwardly connected to that, I can see as sort of somewhat of an outsider coming back. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we'll walk away and my husband will be like, well, what was that all about? Yes, you know, yes. Because he never grew up here. And I'll be like, I know exactly where that's coming from. Yeah. You know, when you grow up with that type of fear, uh, it does, you yeah. know, leave a mark. Um, now, I'm pretty sure I'm quite a, I'm pretty sure I'm quite a bit older than you. And um, 
my parents had a house in Malvern, which is uh, way out in the East End in Scarborough. And uh, I was living with them at the time and working for Bell Canada. I was a very, very young woman. I probably should have been in school, not working. Um, but I was working for Bell Canada. It was back in the day when anyone could get a job. And uh, my it was in the disco days. I don't even know if you know what they are. <laughs> but I would meet my friends um, at the, the disco downtown. And because I didn't drive, I would have to take uh, the, the TTC out to Shepherd and Markham. And one night, I guess it was around 11 p.m., I was on the bus. And um, a guy got on. I was alone on the bus, and I was sitting kind of near the driver because that's what I used to do when I was traveling at night. And a guy got on and went and sat in the back of the bus. And I didn't think anything of it. I was reading my book because I didn't want to fall asleep and miss my stop. And at one point, the driver stopped the bus, and we were way out to the east end by this point. We must have been in Agent Court area. And he came to me, and he whispered to me, you don't get off the bus. You stay on the bus no matter what. So I stayed on the bus. We ended up out at the zoo. You know where that is, I'm sure. And he went to the guy, and he said, this is your stop. Get off. And the guy pretended that he'd fallen asleep and he had another stop and wanted to go back. And the driver said, no, this is your stop. Get off. And I guess he had probably, in my mind now looking back, he'd probably seen this guy stalking young women before. And about a week after that incident is when the Toronto Argonauts cheerleader was killed in agent court. If you'll recall that, you may not recall that story. I think you may be too young. But that was put down to the Scarborough rapist, who we later learned was Paul Bernardo. And so these stories have always chilled me. They've always really chilled me. So I know what you're saying when you say that when you hear a parent taking extra precautions that may even seem kind of unreasonable, you know where they're coming from. Well, yeah, and even though it's, what, 25 years later, um, those things are embedded in you yes <laughs> you know those those memories so we um it, it's actually um really quite ironic that you even asked me about Bernardo mainly because um we've never told our children <clears throat> my kids knew nothing about it okay uh, even when we moved here and um it was literally about three days ago earlier this week um that my 12 year old came home from school and we all eat dinner together, so we sat down at the dinner table. And she says, um, somebody at school told me that we live across the street from a murderer. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, my husband and I just sort of look at each other because we know exactly where this is going. <laughs> um, and we said, no, that's, that's not, that's not, no, you do not. Um, but anyway, make a long story short, uh, we... We had her tell us exactly what her friends were telling her at school, and we obviously had to give my, my two daughters, we had to give my kids uh, enough information so that they understood what it is that they're being told. Yeah. Um, but, and, and, you know, my older one, her first question was, why didn't you tell us, you know? Well, and, because it would have colored your entire childhood. Yeah, you know, and I said, you know why? Because... We moved here a year ago from a whole other city. It was a whole new change for them. They had only lived in the same house their entire lives. Our previous house we were in for 15 years. Um, It was the first time they had ever moved. We moved an hour and change away from where we lived before. They didn't know a soul here other than we have some family here, but they didn't know any friends or anyone at school. Um, My older daughter was actually starting high school three days after we moved in here mm-hmm. uh, starting grade nine which is hard enough yes. you know, for somebody starting grade nine and there was just so much change happening and so much going on that it was a very conscious decision even when we bought the property and started building that my husband and I made to never to discuss what happened across the street um, well I had no I, idea when I came up with this question and I was reluctant to even ask it but um You know, uh, writers in the Toronto area have researched this particular case, most writers, uh, quite a bit, especially crime writers like myself. And uh, 
So when I learned that you lived in St. Catharines, I wanted to ask the question, but I had no idea that it was so closely connected. Well, first of all, um, the house is not there anymore. No. So, like, this is one of the things I had to make clear to my kids the other day. Yes. You know, the land is not even there anymore. You have to understand, the, the, the city or the police department, I'm not sure who, who would do that, but that, that whole entire area was gutted. I yes. Mean, they had to. They, they tore up everything. Yeah. Um, so the existing house that is there now is relatively new. It's only been there within, I believe, like the last ten years. Um, so it's it's not like anything is still there. It's, no. It's gone. It is mm-hmm. now other people's houses. And actually, the young lady who lived there is in my daughter's class. So that's how some of this came about. Okay. Okay. Um, now to get but, to uh, yeah, just to get to a lighter note, because sorry for <laughs> for sorry for taking you down that rabbit hole, but <laughs> you've recently signed with Hillary McMahon, um, VP of Westwood Creative Artists, and they're working with you on the Got series, and uh, the the series has a theme and a story. Um, well, of course, it has a theme and a story. <laughs> I may have to edit such a name conversation out, sorry. <laughs> but what can you tell us about the characters and the situations in uh, book one of Got? Uh, so Got is um, sort of our world altered. And so uh, am I? do you have enough time for me to just give a tidbit of how I even came up with Got? I sure do. That- yeah. Not something, or do you want me to just focus on the characters? No, 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 no. Tell tell us whatever you want to tell us about God. So, um, God was uh, created, or the way I came up with the premise of that was I was actually driving um, for work to Washington, D.C. for a conference. And I, my husband and kids decided to come with me and spend a few days. Um, and so my kids were in the back and watching movies, and so I couldn't have the radio on. You, anyone with young kids know what that's like. They, they can't hear the movie if you have the radio on, so it's silent. And the day before we left, my husband had an injury in hockey and was on pain meds, so he slept like nine of ten-hour drive. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you get um, your best writing done, so it right? Was a very, let's just say it was very sort of quiet, peaceful, you know, introverted drive for me, uh, driving the car. And uh, uh, the drive from Toronto to uh, Washington is sort of back roads and a lot of um, on and off small highways and stuff. And uh, I was, it was June, so spring, and I was blown away by the amount of, and I know this sounds awful, but roadkill, uh, dead animals uh-huh. on the side of the road uh, to the point where it hurt. Um, I, I would pass these, like, Dozens and dozens of deer, and it was spring, so they're all out, and they get hit by cars, and and there was just so much of it, and I, I do find myself, I have a, a bit of a connection to nature, at least I try to, mm-hmm. and so it really, really bothered me, yeah. um, to the point where I started apologizing to each one that I passed, um, to, my, to myself, just mm-hmm. quietly in mm-hmm. my head, you know, I am really sorry that, not that I hit it, but that, that this happened to you, yeah. You yeah. had, you know, you've you've had you've had to die so that this road could be here for me to get to Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm really sorry for that. And I kept finding I was apologizing, apologizing. And so um, at one point, because you know, as a writer, we don't go anywhere without pen and paper. I pull out my notepad and and I'm trying to drive with one hand and oh, no. <laughs> write with the notepad on my lap on the <laughs> other. And and I, I was just writing down how it feels and, and how, and I was like, okay, well, what would I do? How would I get to Washington if this road wasn't here? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I could fly or do other things, but, you know, modern day transportation, this is how we get around. Yeah. And, and I started to think, well, man, what would this world be like if we didn't do this? If we mm-hmm. didn't blow dynamite holes into sides of mountains and plow through forests? And we didn't, um, you know, tear down, you know, entire 
you know, acres of trees to run highways. If we let nature recover itself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if if we didn't do this, if we lived with nature instead of against nature. Which is a very um, Canadian theme, I I, I I must say, as Ed Grimley oh, would say. That's a very Canadian way of thinking. Let me put it that way. Uh, and uh, in terms of apologizing to the dead woodland creatures, as my husband and I call them, it sounds like something my husband would do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to realize really quick that this interview is going to make me sound like a somebody who's a little bit off kilter. I love off kilter. I think most people expect their writers to be off kilter. (laughs) I'm really not. I'm very much like a business frame of mind. I'm very much an A plus, you know, Uh A equals, you know, something. Okay, we believe you, Dee. We believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it was just, um, and so I I, I basically came up with, um, with that concept before I even, like anything else. And, and that was sort of the way it started was I was like, okay, like, what would this world be like without all this? You know, how would I get around? And, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and actually one of the very first things, if you don't mind me reading it. No, please do. So I'm just going to read you the, it's, it's just one paragraph and it's actually the, um, opening of God, uh, and, um, the only, my purpose for reading it is, is that this is actually one of the very first things I wrote. I wrote this before I even arrived at the hotel in Washington. And it, it never changed a single word from the published, or what will be the published version. Uh, in 1819, the madman of a tiny town in Bulgaria invented a machine to take him from point A to point B without moving a muscle. An ugly thing, the machine, not the man. All wires in a big old wooden crate filled with who knows what but it worked. The most discerning thing about it was the mess of wires and mud lace twine that wrapped around the head. It resembled a crown. Befitting seeing this ingenious contraption would soon be prized by king and country. The madman called it a got, the gift of travel. Now, over 200 years later, gots are not only built, but born. And I, for one, do not consider it a gift. Oh, very intriguing. I like that. So the so, gift, the the gods are are human, at this point. Yeah, and so the, my purpose behind reading that was because I I truly believe anyway that pretty well the entire premise of God is in that one paragraph. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It is. It um, really is. You know, is is that is that I in and and I created that entire thing before I even got to Washington. So in the what eight and a half hour drive. You know, I think and, some of the best works are. Uh, they're conceived of during trips. I hear this from other authors, and I've certainly experienced it myself. Um, I first started taking novel writing seriously during a trip to Kingston, of all places, with my family. I've got uh, three children, but at the time we only had two, and my husband and I decided that we were going to take a three-day excursion to Kingston just for something to do. And uh, we always book a hotel that has a pool because we're swimmers. We love to swim. We were really struck by the the triple nature of Kingston. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the city, but um, there's the academia, there is the prison system, and there is the military uh, educational system. And the three aspects pretty much dominate all of Kingston. And I just thought that was such a, as a military brat myself, and I'd never lived in Kingston, but I thought that was just a fascinating way to build a city, you know, and it got me thinking and it got me thinking about a novel, which I never did complete, but it was the beginning of that road for me. And I've certainly heard this from other writers, too, that travel seems to inspire something in us that uh, kind of jogs us down that road, you know. For sure. For mm-hmm. sure. And, and then which... I think where my... Um... Because I do have this, all of my stories tend to have this, I hate the word supernatural because it makes it sound so vampires and it's not, um, but all my stories do have this sort of otherworldly sort of thread. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very much rooted in the here and now and current day reality, but um, but they do have that thread in them. And, um, and I think it's just because I find that aspect fascinating. And going back to the very first thing we talked about is I don't really necessarily believe in, mm-hmm. in a lot of it. 
but I but I find it incredibly intriguing. Yes, um, yes. To think of the possibilities and mm-hmm. to think that there's so much more out there than than I know or that I will ever know. Yeah, or and that with, anyone with such a, an intriguing know. body of work that is growing right in front of you, and it is very original. I mean, the themes are incredibly original. I'm I'm really impressed with that. So I'm wondering who your favorite authors are and how they've influenced your work because, you know, you're not writing run-of-the-mill stuff here. It's quite different. Yeah, which makes it hard to publish. <laughs> <laughs> and yet when you when you have those niche readers, they're really going to enjoy it. You know, you know that, it, right? It's one of those catch-22s is, is that, um, you know, everybody know publishing screams you know unique we want unique stories and unique characters and unique voices um, but do they really <laughs> um, but, but when you present them with that people do get a little afraid yeah. um because it's the unknown and mm-hmm. uh publishing is a business in a world of numbers and um and so it's hard to understand how that is going to translate to sales yeah. and it becomes difficult uh, don't get me wrong i've had great experience with publishing. I'm not cutting that up in any way, shape, or form, and I have an awesome agent, and all of that is good, but but I do see, I do see that. Yeah, you see both sides of the unique uh, parallel, um, but, but back to your favorite authors, though. Can you tell me who would have? Um, I would, if I had to pick one, I, by far my most sort of, um, the author that most influenced me as a writer would probably be an I'm going to apologize if she ever hears this because I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce her last name, but it's Audrey Neffeninger. Okay. Um, she wrote uh, The Time Traveler's Wife. Yes, yes, I'm familiar with um, that. Which I think was published quite a few years ago now. I think that's been out for a good, I don't know, at least maybe 10, 15 years, if not more. <laughs> Time does indeed fly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's probably the one, I mean, I read books, ferociously. I, I read a lot. Um, and I tend to read books that I love for one reason or another. I read them over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably, again, I'm sounding like a crazy, I've probably read Time Travel's Wife about 11 or 12 times. Well, it's a great book. And, and uh, it was a great movie, too. I mean, it was, again, yeah. it was quite offbeat. It was quite different. Um, I, I don't think we should ever apologize for being offbeat or try to explain <laughs> that away. I mean, you can be a sensible, down-to-earth family woman and businesswoman, and you can be all those things in your real life, but it, in your imagination, that's where we fly. That's you know? true. And, and I, I think uh, The Time Traveler's Wife, um, for me, hit all the buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, it is in my mind um, I, I think her writing is spot on uh, perfect yeah. in my mind yeah. um, the characters to this day um, I anytime I sit down and write her characters are the very first to come to mind mm-hmm. aside from my own of course or so it's really sta- it's really stayed but, with you and I mean I, I'm I'm fascinated with what influences us I really am I've got one more question for you and then we've got a we've got a wrap up for today but uh, I've promised our listeners that we'll always have a tip have you got a tip you can share with new writers in particular um I'm known to say uh Write for yourself, always. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I've had some really bad health experiences the last six months, um, and you know the the whole cliche of you know you don't know until you look death in the eye. You know what you're really all about mm-hmm. uh, is quite true. Um, it's a saying for a reason. Yes. <laughs> and um, life is really too short to be writing for agents, publishers, even readers to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as writers or as authors, we spend at least, you know, some, I, I've never, I don't know anybody who can write a book in anything less than six months or a year, yeah. uh, at least not a, not a good one necessarily. Mm-hmm. And um, we spend sometimes years and years and years, um, you know, uh, surrounded by our characters and the story 
And that's a long time to spend for someone else. Yeah, yeah, it is. And fermenting those ideas, I mean, I've had an entire novella come out as uh, automatic writing, you know what automatic writing is. Um, it's not usual for me. I'm not a seat-of-the-pants writer. Um, I'm very much a planner, and and I like to research, and I like to know what I'm doing. But with uh, The Noon God, the idea had fermented in my mind for the better part of two years, to the point where I knew every character. I knew exactly what they were doing and why, and I knew how it would begin and how it would end. And so when I sat down to write, there was no need for outlines. There was no need for, for any of that. It just came out of the fingertips, you know? Um, and I think that's what you're talking about when we spend so much time with our characters and our ideas. They have to at least be our own. Yeah, you have to write for yourself. You have to write because it's your passion and there's no other way that you'd like to spend your time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your spare time. That, that's right, yeah. I, yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, it's, it's a hard gig, uh, I will say that. It's, it's um, you know, there is the business side of me that says that for the amount of hours and work that we put into writing, we, as authors, do deserve. Yeah. We deserve. Um, the rewards don't always bear scrutiny. They, they don't. No, uh, at least not the financial rewards. No, you know, uh, it's no get rich quick program. <laughs> it's really not. You know, really uh, not. and there's a misconception amongst readers, by the way, with that. A lot of times, you know, someone, you know, will be out at a whatever social event, and someone will say to my husband, "Oh, what do you, you know, what do you and your wife do?" And he'll say what he does, and he'll say, "Oh, my my, my wife is a, a writer. She's a, she's an author." And oh, oh, and they they make and they go on and on and on to make it sound like you're this, you know. Yeah. Famous millionaire. Okay, I sit in front of a computer all day typing my, you know, little heart and soul out onto a computer. Nobody yes. recognizes it at all, generally. No. <laughs> no. And, uh, and um, if I had to rely on uh, just my writing, I'm not sure my kids would be fed. <laughs> I so, know mine wouldn't. I mean, I make no secret of the fact that I've had a full-time job my whole life, ever since I was 16. I've worked full-time, yeah. and... Um, and I have no apologies for it. There was a time when I was younger when I used to daydream about ditching the whole the whole uh, work thing, you know, and uh, becoming a full-time writer, which, of course, is a lot of work, too, if people don't realize it. But now in my more august self, I kind of recognize that my being able to support myself and my family my whole life has also supported my art. I've been yep. free to write exactly how I want to write. I've been free to network with authors from all over and get their insights, which is something not a lot of people have the time or the money to do. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And, yeah. And so and, I, and I, value, I, I value having been able to make a living outside of my art and been free to pursue my art the way I want. Yeah, you know, um, do it because it's a story that you cannot shake, and um, you know, even though it sounds like the way I've explained, you know, sort of, you know, God or a keeper's truth, or even no apology for being that I'm working on now, um, sounds like they, you know, come faster, easy, like, and and I suppose in some ways those general premise uh, of of God in particular, since I created the general premise and just hours sounds like it's fast and easy but but those are things that go back and you marinate them for months and months mm -hmm. and months and and I'm like you I'm a I'm a diehard planner um you know everything is well documented yes um uh, no apology for being I I was actually just chuckling talking on the phone with a writer friend of mine uh, someone that we both know by the way but um the other day and I had commented on how I had just done this random check in my Scrivener uh, program to see how many words I had accumulated for no apology for being. And I was at like 84,000 <laughs> words. Um, what's funny about that is I, I haven't actually written the story. Uh -huh. I haven't started writing no apology for being. So this I is have, just outline and, and material. I have and laid out. I yeah. have dozens and dozens of scenes laid out. 
I have pages upon pages, obviously, of character profiles. I have tons of research. Um, I have the entire plot figured out from starting to finish. I know exactly what's going to happen. It's one of the reasons also that I firmly believe my stories don't have any saggy middles. They are so well planned out. Yeah. Have a good flow. Um, But yeah, and so, uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm not necessarily saying all that's a good thing. In fact, her words to me were, you have 80 something thousand words and you haven't written it yet? What the hell are you doing? But you know what? You know what? This is a, this is, this is almost a divide. And you hear this from athletes and you hear it from artists in almost every every form of art, musicians, painters, when you make it look easy, it's usually because of the multitude of hours of work behind it. So that when you're ready to write as a writer, and if it starts to just flow and come into being in a very organic way, it's usually because you've put so many hours of research and documentation and planning and outlining in behind it, so now you're free to just tell your story. You don't have to wonder where it's going. That's that's a really important point, and it's actually um, something that any newbie writers, especially, should should try to incorporate into their their writing program or how they how they plan and process. Is that um, I I think personally that when you have all the research done and you've got your characters really well vetted, and, and I don't mean just sitting down and writing general things, I mean literally staring out the window, I've spent countless, countless hours and days and days and days and days just staring out the window and writing notes on, you know, exactly how my character, each individual character thinks, and yes. where they're coming from, and their history, their childhood, and experiences they've had that marked them, Yeah, and all of these things are all noted, and it doesn't necessarily mean that... I mean, out of the 80-something thousand words that I already have written, you know, a large percentage of that will never, ever find its way into the story. No, Maybe For me, no. it won't. But for you, um, it's, it's mental background. But yeah. I need to know it. Yes. As, as the writer. And, and then, to me, what that means is that when I sit down, which I'm, I'm literally at the point where I, I'm going to and I need to start, start writing, so uh, I, I will be, be writing that in the next... Uh, upcoming week or two I have to start and um but when I sit down to write it I now can focus on the writing itself I can Mm -hmm. focus on the words I can focus on the flow and the pace and the um you know the emotion that the characters feel and I can get real down into the nitty-gritty on on the you know just pure technology of it of how it all kind of comes together Instead of trying to, you know, figure out flounder, instead of floundering as you write, yeah, Um, you know where it's going or what what I've missed or if I've tied up a loose end or this that and the other, I don't ever ever think that stuff because I did all that before I wrote it. I'm going to call that tip number two because I think in some ways that's, um, you know, write for yourself is really really important, but do your work too, do your research, do your planning. I'm a big believer in that. I mean, there are times when a story does just come out of your mind. There's no question. But um, for the most part, the best stories are well-planned and and well-researched. And at least that's my view. Yeah. Uh, Denise, stay with us for just a moment. Uh, I'm going to sign off now, but I want to thank you for coming to Dead to Rights and for all of your great insights and telling us about your creative process, which is another one of those cliches that's a cliche because it's important. People want to know about the creative process. They really do, you know. So thank you for all of that. Thank you. I want to thank Dee Wilson for joining us today on Dead to Rights. You can find Dead to Rights, the podcast, at deadtorights.ca or at our podcast Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter, at Donna underscore Carrick, or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. My husband, Alec, can be found at at Alex underscore Carrick, or at his website, AlexCarrick.com. 
Join us next week when we'll be speaking with George Mercer, a retired Canadian parks ranger and a mystery author. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Garrick, who also brought us all original story scoring music. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week when we'll bring you our review of The Outsider by Stephen King. Never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides.